The simple truth, with immortality still unproven in modern science, we will all one day die. But what part does the life we lead and the length and location of our life play in our belief that we can be carried to another, maybe celestial plane? Geographic and religious demographic plays an important role in how we report our NDEs and accordingly, how such declarations of near-death encounters are received in the communities and family circles in which we live. I'm Charlie Webster, and this is the sixth edition of Died and Survived, as we explore how we react to meeting our maker. Our shared destiny. Come with me, it said. There is no hint of emotion, just an order, like matter-of-fact blankness. I don't say a word, I just stand looking at you. It all finishes here. This is meant to be the end. I can feel myself drift. The pull of you is so much stronger than anything of me. This is it. I know it is. No questions, no voices in my head. Mundane nothingness. Just how I used to be as a child. Yeah, I'll come. I'm eager to please. I'm making the most routine decision in my life like I'm deciding which bread to buy at the shop. There's no distress, no feelings attached. With each investigation into life after near-death experiences, it becomes apparent that once we wake, we are left with a dilemma. We either hide the truth of what we have witnessed at death's door, either through silence or shame, or we tell those we trust to try and consider and understand. As we're about to hear from our series of voices, reactions swing wildly and the consequences can be monumental. Annie and then Betty recall the harsh realities of whether to tell anyone and how honest you can actually be. I didn't speak about it for years. I didn't tell the people closest to me. Really? Mm-mm. I would have been laughed right out of the room. It was, we didn't, me growing up, we had an atheistic household. We never talked about it. Even when a pet died, we never talked about death. Really? Never talked about it. It's like the goldfish, and it's, wait, wait, it's dead. And that's it. And it's flushed down the toilet. It's gone. And we never discussed it. I mean, when the cat died or anything like that, it was just never a topic. We didn't talk about death or what happens to you after you die. None of that stuff. It, was, it wasn't a topic in our household. We didn't go to church. We weren't churchy people. And the only thing about God we ever had was um, the kids on the school loan, like second and third grade. <laughs> and they found out I wasn't baptized. And they said, well, you're going to burn in a lake of fire if you die if you're not baptized. And, you know, my eyes went, eh, I'm only in third grade. I don't understand anything. Yeah. How old are you in third grade? What age is that? You know, like about seven or eight. Yeah. My God. That's the first time That's I've ever That's awful. That. That's so much... Kind yeah. of installs so much fear. Well, we don't go to church. I don't know anything. I mean, yeah. you know. And um, my mother was a very abusive person. So, you know, she wasn't the kind of person you could go to. Like, you sound like you have a really nice mom. But I didn't. Not a, not a, not a nice person. So, um, talking to her about anything, you couldn't do. Absolutely couldn't do. So, so is it, was it quite repressed? Was it quite, oh, you know, yeah. not very open? Yeah. Well, my mom and my sister were like two peas in a pod, and they were like best friends. So I was like the outside, that whole target child, golden child thing. And uh, like my sister was allowed to call me stupid every single day, 
When I would come home from school, before I even opened the door, I'd look at it and go, she can't kill me because she'd go to prison. I mean, it was like that. You were even afraid to come home because you knew you were going to get beaten. Okay, So um, it, was, it was so bad, and I was such a rageful. I was your typical mouthy, cussing, fight with my sister teenager. Okay, And she used to do things to provoke me. So she would lie. My mother would come in a tear and just start wailing on me with her fists. You know, you're only 15 years old, your child, experiencing something. So it must have been very overwhelming. Yes. And, you know, my, my mother, when I was younger, had us go to church frequently every week. And it, it had been a couple of years since I really went because I had been working and I really, I really couldn't agree after that with anything in an organized religion because it just seemed so, simple compared to the reality of what I felt and what I knew. It's like I understood after this the complexity of all creation and the interconnectedness of it and that you know we're all living things are just energy and that's that's not the way that organized religion works. So there was no help there either. <laughs> and I definitely couldn't relate with the kids my own age anymore. And as I got older, a little bit older, you know, and I overcame some of the issues that I had from the accident. But it's not the physical things, it's the emotional that have been difficult. Because I, I came out of this understanding, you know, that it's like what I understood from my experience was that all of life and all living things were created with love. And that's the basis for understanding everything. And, you know, how different energies affect one another. I was you know? just thinking, Betty, do you feel like it was, it was almost like a, you saw this amazing insight, but then did it also become quite a heavy responsibility that you saw that and, and the fact that other people didn't maybe get that? Yes. You know, I, I, I tried to share not the experience that happened with me, but things that I understood from it. And a lot of people thought I was really weird, which really restrained me from sharing more. But, you know, it definitely changed the way that, that I am with that understanding, because I live from a different perspective, you know? And um, as a later teenager, because I, I felt more and more isolated, people respond to me differently. And I was very young, you know, so it's, you know, somebody might say, well, how would you know? 
because they do it's it's almost like without me saying anything about anything that happened to me i'm perceived differently i'm i'm i don't know if you know what i mean i don't know i don't yeah. know how to work no i kind of do it's almost like even though you don't you don't need to say things sometimes you probably you probably were different after this and maybe you behaved slightly different because of that and maybe people can sense that yeah you you feel differently to others I, I tried to commit suicide when I was a later teenager in great part because of this I you know nothing nothing was ever the same and I saw the same woman again and I, I returned to the same place that I had been at the, the, in that rather dark place in that desolation, which I understood to be a place between, between the here and the whatever else. Do you mind me asking I, you something about that? Did, you mentioned, um, you said the word guilt and I could sense that before your accident, going back to your accident, when you were thrown from your horse, there was things and obviously you don't have to talk about it. Was the guilt that you felt attached to your friend? It was. And uh, this this is very emotional. Uh, she was she was a horse. She was mine, and she had tried to jump a fence and had eviscerated herself on a steel fence post. There are people that would disagree, but she loved me. We had a wonderful relationship, and I had raised her from a foal. She was an orphan. Oh, God, I can imagine what that bond was like that you both yeah. had. I had a... I didn't have a, a good home life. And... There was a, a lot of... Um, a lot of difficulty there. That... She was like the, the, the bright spot in my life. And I, I had always felt responsible for her death, which had not been long before my accident. But I, I seem to understand that, you know, she had gone with me on this part of the journey of my consciousness between life and death. I had a time reconciling how this happened because it, it was very real and after time it was very comforting as well you know it alleviated not only the feelings of loss because I knew she was okay after this but I, I did stop feeling so responsible I think that's so common as you you probably know now especially with 
the work you're doing studying psychology is so common especially for younger people to to feel responsible for things that happen yeah it's like so common in trauma and it's 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 amazing that she you know she appeared again um and you had a similar experience after you know attempting suicide I didn't I didn't see her I yeah. saw I saw the being right you know it seemed to be some like like a, a gatekeeper or um, some sort of being you know she stopped me and I was not allowed to go any further I was sent back again and she told me basically the same thing that she had before and I tried I've tried you know to figure out what I'm supposed to do and what I'm supposed to say you know it's it's still too much to understand So I've tried to help, to help others. And this is where the, the negative part of this, I've often tried to help people that didn't know or didn't, didn't care to understand um, what I was trying to share with them. But I, I felt so strongly if people understood what I understood you know, they could take that knowledge into their own life mm. and use it in the way that it relates to everyone on some level. On the positive side, you know, there there have been many people that I I know it made a difference to. Mm. You know, and I've I've not told them about my experience. I, I did a few times when I was a teenager, tried to talk about it, and I got treated like a freak. And it's just, it, it's very deeply personal. Mm. So I stopped. I have kind of a weird view on on death and spirituality, which is like very happily sitting on the fence. <laughs> um, I, I'm open to multiple possibilities and I'm content in not settling on an answer. I've had other experiences that have made me wonder about reincarnation. Um, I've had yeah, this that sense of like welcoming and peace. And I don't think that there needs to be anything supernatural for it to still feel like magic. Like if it was just my brain that conjured that up, that's pretty awesome. Like that's pretty incredible that my brain would do that. Um, and if it was some other force or something else that's just something to discover 
That openness to acceptance that we've just heard from our guest known as Miss Wondersmith typifies a lot of research data. Is there? Isn't there? I'm not quite sure. Maybe? Maybe not? It's the majority thought process that so many initial sceptics and believers hover between. Dave is Hawaiian, a culture steeped in spiritual tradition, and that played a huge part in how he reported his four NDEs that began in childhood and continued right through until middle age. First of all, we're taught at a very young age not to be afraid of spirits. You know, anything spiritual, anything that we see when we're sleeping or meditating, come to us in a vision, so don't be afraid. And so when I was going through my, my own near-death experiences, actually fear, of, uh, right after I left my body and being afraid, is what um, kicked me into a different realm because my ancestors realized that I was frightened and they came to be helped. Here in Hawaii, we believe that um, when we summon our ancestors, and since our ancestors are always very close to us, they're right behind us and right around us. When we need them, they're there to help us. So in two of my near-death experiences, um, I was assisted by uh, my ancestors who came and picked me up because I was scared. The fact that you said the word fear, um, in a way, is comforting to me because, (laughs) (laughs) and I mean this in the nicest possible way, I would never want anybody or yourself to experience fear, but I felt a lot of fear and to hear that it's almost like, oh, it's normal, I think Mm -hmm. helps. So um, I'm really grateful that my ancestors stepped up and helped me. Did you describe it as a, just because I'm, I'm curious that you were so young, did you describe it then as a near-death experience? Did you know the, no. yeah, I wondered that because did you even know what that term was? I thought it was just a real strange dream. <laughs> yeah. So when did you start to go, oh yeah, that was a, that was a near-death experience? Well, what made me realize that something special had happened is that shortly after the near-death experience, some of my skills that I have now began to appear. Um, I could see spirits clearly like I see you. Really? <laughs> They're all over the place. And um, another skill that I learned or emerged after this experience is uh, the ability to see hidden objects. And uh, one of the games my dad used to play with us as kids was doing uh, church. <laughs> he would hide uh, different things in his pockets, like a piece of gum, candy, whatever. And he'd ask us to guess which of the pockets <laughs> um, you know, the goodies were. And for me, I just step on the side and uh, look at his pockets and I can identify what's in all of his pockets. <laughs> Juicy fruit is on your left side. Uh, <laughs> Crack seed is on the right. <laughs> uh, that comes and, in handy. <laughs> and the velvet, and the velvet um, candy that uh, people used to take for breath mints, it's on this side, and I don't like that. 
and started off with that. And then right. when I was invited to uh, birthday parties and people bearing gifts, and I just stare at it and I close my eyes and imagine myself opening the package and I can see what's inside. How did that play out in your environment, given the fact that when you initially said about what you'd experienced, your parents and the nurses saw it as a dream and didn't kind of embrace it? Yeah, well, first, uh, when I first started telling people or, and my friends about what I endured, they thought I was strange. And then when I could describe things in boxes, in their purses, in their bags, they knew I was weird. <laughs> Something different about this yeah. kid. <laughs> Did you find it hard or isolating or confusing at times as a child? Yes. Uh, I ended up being a loner. Um, I, I did have friends, but uh, it was very uh, small handful of friends. And I learned real quick several months out of the hospital that some of these abilities are scaring a lot of people. And uh, a lot of people couldn't handle it, especially kids my age. And um, I my head was really deformed. <laughs> from my accident, they really? were so swollen and I had to go back to surgery for, to repair. But uh, it was really deformed. And so some of the mean kids used to call me all kinds of names. Uh, the, the name they used to tease me was uh, football head because my head was pointed. <laughs> I looked like an alien. <laughs> oh. How do you... Because, you know, we're talking about what it was like for you as a child. How do you reflect on that now? Because um, one of the things I was, I've been looking into is the transformative experience of near-death experiences. But I don't know how that translates with a child that has a near-death experience. Uh, for me, um, these skills... Uh, came to me at an early age, and uh, as an early age uh, and the time period that I was uh, trying to display these things uh, was not the right time. You know, it was just not the right time, not the right setting. Um, because when I was growing up, everything, all of the emphasis um, um, in schools and in church was uh, westernizing the Hawaiian, you know, um, our language. We were, uh, my grandparents and great-grandparents were forbidden to use the language. They were punished for speaking Hawaiian. Wow. So by the time um, my my dad was fluent in Hawaiian, he could speak Hawaiian, but he hardly used Hawaiian for us. Uh, we all knew the dirty words, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we all knew those types of words, but to use it in conversation, uh, very few of us, you know, anyone that was showing, displaying skills that kind of like throw back into our ancestral roots, uh, they, they were treated with really uh, frowned upon. And uh, for me, on both sides of my family, my mom and my dad's side, uh, we're, we have really strong kahuna lineage. 
you know so some of my ancestors were uh, very very powerful people this big man that came to help me what later i found out that uh, he was a very special type of uh, kahuna a kahuna kilo or a prophet and seer now if you can see hidden things and you can predict the future that's displaying uh, uh, the art of kilo and that's what i was doing as a kid <laughs> i could predict things i would dream things and they would come true see what you're talking about is very valid because um for me personally i think uh near-death experiences is a uh, mental thing it happens uh, within our minds and our perceptions and everything so if it's happening inside of our mind, we have the ability to control that, you know, and what happens and what is real and what is not. And um, since and since this is a mental process, uh, naturally our beliefs, what we accept and what we don't accept, uh, is displayed in these uh, in these experiences. So. Everything that happens inside, and just my personal belief, yeah. Uh, but everything that happens within the framework of a near-death experience, uh, you're looking at things that you accept to be true. So regardless of what culture you come from. Right, then I'm going to take the Grayson NDE scale, which is on the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which says celebrating 40 years. Um, it's actually got a quote on the website that says, unconditional love is like the sun. International Association Near-Death Studies sharing groups online. That might be quite interesting. So the qualifying phenomenon, basically, it's whether you qualify for a near-death experience. So professor and psychiatrist Bruce Grayson developed the scale to measure the depth of an individual's near-death experience. The following is a copy of the scale as presented in an article entitled Altered States by Lee Graves in the summer 2007 edition of the University of Virginia magazine. So I'm going to take this scale developed by professor and psychiatrist Bruce Grayson because I realized that I'm saying I've had a near-death experience, but then do I need it qualified? It was interesting because I asked a friend about this and they said, why do you need a study to validate your experience? Because it was my experience no matter what it's labeled as. But I thought it'd be quite interesting to take the scale, which is based on research, to see if it qualified in the Grayson scales mind about what an NDE is. So each question has an answer, which is either no, and then two other answers and the no equals zero. And the other answers equal one and equal two points. So how many points do you have to get? Among a criterion group of NDEs, is what they're called, the mean score on this scale was 15 with a standard deviation of 7.84. We therefore use a score of 7 or greater as the cutoff point for identifying an experience as an NDE. 
So if the sum of the items equals one to four, it's a cognitive component. If the sum of the items is five to eight, it's an effective component. If the sum of the items are nine to 12, it equals a paranormal component. And if 13 to 16, it's a transcendental component. So if you get a score less than five, then it's unclassifiable. Oh, great. (laughs) So funny. Well, what if I get less than seven? Does this mean that I didn't have a near-death experience and actually this project is completely pointless? No, it's not. (laughs) So the first question is, did time seem to speed up or slow down? So, no, time seemed to go faster or slower than usual. Everything seemed to be happening at once, or time stopped or lost all meaning. So, mine was the third answer, which is everything seemed to be happening at once, or time stopped or lost all meaning. So that means I scored two. I'm just going to write that down. Um, Two. The second question, were your thoughts speeded up? No, faster than usual, incredibly fast. Oh, mine was definitely incredibly fast. Third question. Did scenes from your past come back to you? No, or I remembered many past events. My past flashed before me out of my control. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That was mine. So that's another two points. So I've got six points so far. And I'm only through three questions. Question four. Did you suddenly seem to understand everything? No, I don't think I did. So I think that's a no. So I get zero points. Did you have a feeling of peace or pleasantness? No, I definitely did not. Um, So I get zero for no. Did you have a feeling of joy? Oh no. Now I'm going downhill, I'm getting no points. No, I didn't have a feeling of joy. One is happiness and two is incredible joy. I get no again. Did you feel a sense of harmony or unity with the universe? No. Zero points. I felt no longer in conflict with nature. I felt united or one with the world. Oh no, I felt in so much conflict. So zero points again. So I basically got two, 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 and then I got four zeros. Were your senses more vivid than usual? Oh yes, incredibly vivid. How many questions? Oh, only 16 questions. So, where am I at? Uh, 10. Did you seem to be aware of things going on elsewhere as if by extrasensory perception? Yes. And the facts have been checked out. Yes, they have. So I get two points for that one. Did you feel separated from your body? I get two points for that one. Did you seem to enter some other unearthly world? Zero is no, one, some unfamiliar and strange place, a clearly mystical or unearthly realm. I think mine's probably one point, some unfamiliar and strange place. Did you seem to encounter a mystical being or presence or hear an unidentifiable voice? Yeah, definitely two points. I encountered a definite being or a voice clearly of mystical or unearthly origin. 15, nearly there. Did you see deceased or religious spirits? What was in people? Mm, don't know. Is there a don't know? <laughs> um, I sensed their presence. I actually saw them. I mean, I actually saw my nan and granddad. 
So that's deceased spirits, right? So that's two points. Final question. Did you come to a border or point of no return? No is zero. I came to a definite conscious decision to return to life is one point. I came to a barrier that I was not permitted to cross or was sent back against my will. It's two points. Mine was, um, I was permitted to cross. So mine was one, I came to a definite conscious decision to return to life. That's it. I've done it. A score of seven or higher is considered a near-death experience for research purposes. I'm not great at maths, by the way. Two, four, zero, 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 eight, 12, 14, 15, 17, 20. Oh my gosh, I got 20. And the mean score is 15. So I got a score of 20, which means that by research purposes, I definitely had a near-death experience. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I suppose that's just qualified that Anyway, Mr. Bruce Grayson, I've got 20 on your scale. Now what? <laughs> what does that mean? So now I've taken the Grayson NDE scale test, I want to ask Dr. Raymond Moody about pattern behaviour and interpretation of the after effects resulting from a near-death experience. I think the patterns are very important, and I think of it in terms of... Uh, the, it's what, when I wrote Life After Life, what I had in mind, I think if you look at thousands of cases, you see about 15 to 20 common elements that crop up again and again, but not every person has every one of them, see? And one, one person may have two or three or four of them, or five or six or eight of them, or or sometimes in the extremely lengthy cardiac arrest, there are people who talk about the whole full-blown picture. Mm. So it's, it's the, by near-death experience, I'm talking about a collection of about 15 to 20 common features, but that not every mm. person would have all of them. I just wonder what, what you think about, because you said, you know, these, these commonalities, then also... The fact that I read a lot of people's experiences that are positive and it, I mean, it, it was positive in a sense that it's definitely changed me, but my, mm. I found the experience quite distressing. A lot of my past, like I've had some past trauma came up in the, my near-death experience. And I wonder also what your thoughts are mm. in terms of lots of questions here, but whether your past experience and, you know, your own upbringing influences how you would experience a near-death experience? I wonder myself, and I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I decided a long time ago that this will be a surprise for me. You know, I mean, it's it's going to be surprising, even though I've heard thousands of them, because everybody says, you know, there isn't any way to, to talk about it. And, and then in terms of the negative ones, I just don't know what to infer, because... Um, I think also in the Gallup survey that was done on this about in 1979, I think that it was either 3% or 0.3% of them were negative. And that's been similar to my finding. I've just heard so few negative ones that I don't have much of a basis to 
Um, do, do you wonder, Dr. Moody, I wonder, do you think that's because people don't report them? Because I have thought of that. Yeah. It's like, you know, maybe it's just like if I, you know, for, I guess I try to imagine it. I would think I would uh, have a hard time. I personally would have, yeah, you know, I'd have to think about it before mm-hmm. I said, you know, doctor, you know, when I died, I went to hell, right? So I think you're right. That's occurred to me, the underreporting. And um, also the, the negative ones seem a lot more variegated than the positive ones. The positive ones sort of cluster around us, kind of homogenous, but the the negative ones I've talked about, uh, I've talked with, have a little different, I mean, they're just kind of more um, different styles of them. And so, I mean, I just, what I'm trying to say is, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know myself. <laughs> I think that um, I didn't, you know, so we, you said hell, like I didn't have a neg- negative experience where I went to hell. Initially, I felt a, a very split moment. And I say that with no time concept, but it's just a way to describe using the language that yeah. I felt a bit of peace and I wanted it to end because I was in so much pain. And uh. and I just felt like a almost a relief, but only for a moment where it was a relief because I'd had enough but it wasn't mm-hmm. that I'd had enough about just that present pain, but I'd almost had enough of of pain and, and fighting and surviving throughout mm-hmm. my life, which I've done from a very young age. I saw the back of my mom and my mom was really distressed and uh. and then it really it, it kind of like almost shocked me into how could I cause this pain on my mom? I have to fight for this and it was like the most incredible strength. So maybe it isn't necessarily negative because I felt so much strength in that moment where I I knew that I wanted to live. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've heard some people say that they they will talk about the same things that I hear from other people. Like they say, I got out of my body and I started going through this tunnel, but they talk about it as a dysphoric event rather than a pleasant event. Right. And then I had some where it starts negative, but then it sort of turns around and it turns positive. And then I've heard others that are kind of like, I was a forensic psychiatrist and I worked a lot with uh, homicide detectives. And I, in Atlanta, was trying to apprehend a suspect and ran around the corner and right into the guy's gun. And it's like a, you know, had a, it's almost died from the wound and uh he was his was negative but it it, toward the end it was becoming positive so Mm. you know i mean i just the trouble is i just don't have enough you know material to make any sort of inference a positive or negative nde doesn't necessarily transfer into how we live the rest of our earth life And as a prime example in our next debate, I'm gonna open up my thinking and coping mechanisms from my 2016 meeting with death. And for the first time ever, allow some kind of understanding to enter the post-traumatic stress that I've suffered since that life-changing moment. I'll see you in the penultimate episode of Died and Survived.
This is next on Died and Survived. In other words, that is a practically universal theme where like a mother who has a, a, a new baby and the father is off at sea and she's, you know, has this medical crisis. She's watching from above and and um, and she's told, you know, you can you can stay or you can go. And the moment she thinks about her baby and that if she doesn't go back, she, it's not like there's other, she doesn't have other family, you know, no one will be there to take care of that baby. The moment she thinks of that, boom, she's back in her body. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods-Turley with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.